this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. By supporting the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, you get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. So I think when I released the last podcast, I was in Tahiti. Now I'm back in Lafayette, Louisiana, in the heart of hurricane season. But thankfully, my boat is not here in Louisiana. It's hauled out in Tahiti at the moment. So the the main part of this episode is going to be my boat show talk that I did at the Houston Southwest International Boat Show. And I was not able to release this right after I did it in April because I, I had promised a lot of other episodes to a lot of other uh, very interesting sailors. Uh, but I think this is a very useful talk. It's the first ever boat show talk I've ever done. Uh, you know, I don't have the budget to, to go to all the fancy big boat shows and, and do a big trip for that. So, uh, but we do like to drive over to Houston every once in a while. And so that was why we did it in Houston versus uh, maybe a, a, a more popular boat show. I did a highly edited version of this for the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. And on that version, you can see the slide presentation that went along with this. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You know, I think my narrative, slow boat to the Bahamas and slow boat to Cuba, you know, give people a feel of what it really is like to go out cruising to foreign destinations and long distances. But I really wrote How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, which is the boat show talk that's going to be in this episode, to change people's lives, that they don't have to wait until they retire to start their round-the-world voyage. And also to point those that are gonna make the leap that really wanna sail around the world, that they know that they have to make choices to do that, that it's something that will not happen naturally, but they have to make choices to go on the trade wind circumnavigation route. I think I mentioned in the last episode that over half the people in Tahiti, the, the foreign cruisers in Tahiti, are probably from the west coast of North America. You know, I think a lot of people there think they are, you know, well on their way on a round-the-world voyage. But I really like this method of looking at longitude to see how far you've actually gone on a round-the-world voyage. Uh, so, for instance, uh, my crew member, Anna, who you will see late in season two, of slow boat sailing and we've just started the first episode our next episode reviews satellite weather for offshore sailing and comes out september 7th the first thursday of the month anna has gone a really long way she's come from the netherlands by boat all the way to tahiti uh, when she left my boat and we were doing the math on, well, how far around the world is she really by that measure? And she was actually less than halfway around the world. Now, she had not done this all on one boat. She was kind of hitchhiking on boats for a while. She was on her boyfriend's boat, but now she's been on my boat and another boat, and then she got on another boat to continue around. And she wouldn't even get halfway around the world based on longitude 
until she got to Fiji, which was a, a couple thousand miles west from where I last saw her in Tahiti. So there's 360 degrees of longitude. And so probably the typical boat in Tahiti is coming from San Francisco. San Francisco is about 120 west longitude and Tahiti is about 150 west longitude. Well, 30 degrees of longitude is less than 10% around the world. So a boat that has made it all the way to Tahiti, even though they've traveled many thousands of miles, they have not gone around the world very far. So by this measure also, if you're coming from the east coast of the United States and going to the Bahamas, but maybe you spent several uh, thousand miles to get there, you, you're still not very far around the world because you've not gone very far west, right? And so, as, for instance, my first season in the YouTube channel, we were just basically going south and we were not going west until we got to the Panama Canal. We actually even had to go east. And so we'd not really made any progress going around the world. So we'd not really picked up any longitude going around the world and had lost some to get to the Panama Canal. So if you go, for us, we left at New Orleans, which is 90 degrees uh, west about so that means that we've traveled about 60 west or about a sixth of the way around the world to get to Tahiti but that means we got about five sixths of the world to go now obviously longitude is not the same distance on all parts of the world that you could the longitude going around 360 degrees of longitude on the north or south poles would just be a step uh, but around the equator, uh, it's over 20,000 nautical miles. And so that's why a lot of uh, bodies that kind of look at records when it comes to sailing around the world will say you need to cross the equator uh, as part of the round the world trip at least once because if you go across the equator, then you're going across the circumference of the earth. You know, by this measure, you know, if you know you're following a sailor that spent, you know, six years in the Caribbean, started out in Florida or someplace on the East Coast, let's say, well, how much west around the world have they gone? If you're going trade winds, you're going west around the world, you're, you're heading for the western horizon. They've gone no distance west of the world. They have the whole 360 degrees of longitude still to go and maybe more because they actually went east to get to the Eastern Caribbean from the east coast of the United States. So in that instance, you have to be a bit skeptical that they literally are going to go around the world. So one of the things that I found in my research for the book is that the typical circumnavigator that is successful in a small sailboat they're going to do it in less than six years. And I think that's true. You know, given you're going to do it, you have to do it in some bit of speed that, you know, you're, you're a way outlier if you took over 10 years and you're a way outlier if you took over 20 years. I think just people have a limited amount of time that they're willing to live on a boat. So at the Houston Boat Show Seminar, I got to meet up 
with uh, many of the gang that I interviewed uh, from Mantis Anchors in a previous episode, including Deneen Taylor and Philip Cutson. Here's a word from his brother, Greg Cutson, uh, and Mantis is a corporate sponsor of this podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Mantis Anchors founder, Greg Cutson, tells why they created a modular design that can be easily stowed away for their revolutionary anchor. Well, you literally have some time, just a few seconds, to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes it better work at short scope. And when we want to make an anchor modular, it's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster. But we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency, which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor as something that is modular, so you can use it for a variety of applications. You can get Mantis anchors and their other innovative sailing gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. All right, here is my talk before the Houston International Boat Show in April 2017 about my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. This is How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. Sophie and Jana are in the back. And I also sail with my dog daily and some volunteer crew. My day job is, uh, you know, which pays the bill for everything, being a professor. The YouTube channel you can check out. You can see our Around the World Vlog series. We're in episode 12 of season one. We'll start season two with our Marquesas crossing in the summer. And I host the Slow Boat Sailing podcast. So if you have your phones with you, there's a little purple thing. It's called your podcast app. I've learned that only 15% of Americans actually have ever used their podcast app and downloaded a podcast. It's a great thing. You download the podcast on any topic you could imagine, including sailing, and you can save those and listen to those passively when you're doing the dishes, driving, or working on the boat. Uh, the great thing about listening to podcasts versus maybe passively listening to your YouTube is that you can do different things with your phone while you're listening to the podcast app, so it'll keep on running unlike YouTube, it'll just turn off. Okay, so. So I wrote three books, and this, is, this talk is actually going to be about uh, my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. I wrote it because I thought there were a ton of misconceptions about sailing around the world that were preventing people from actually doing it. And I'll go through those misconceptions here. But I also, so this is the book I'm going to talk about. My first book is Slow Boat to the Bahamas. It's a funny look at how I started sailing. And uh, the first part of our trip is a slow boat to Cuba, our round-the-world trip. So it's not a small world after all. It's a big world. If you're going at a jogging pace, the world is big. It takes a long time to get around, and you have to keep on going in the right direction to get around before you die. What you're running into is that people have a limited window uh, when they're actually going to be cruising. Uh, it, it, it comes to an end at some point, uh, either because you don't like it, because uh, somebody gets sick, somebody decides they don't want to be on the boat anymore. 
you run out of money because you need to work, perish the thought. Boating sometimes can get expensive depending on what kind of boat you have, regardless of what kind of boat you have. Uh, so, and, and I think there's a big misconception that you should start out in the Eastern Caribbean to start around the world trip. And I'm gonna say that that's not true. It's, that's actually way out of your way. It means that you're gonna double your mileage in parts of the trip. Uh, one of the problems I think is the round trip problem, which I'll go into. In terms of outdoor adventure challenges, and you know, I've got some feedback from sailors and they don't, they don't quite understand why I'm talking about Everest. You know, we don't care about mountain climbing. We don't like to climb, we don't like to run, we don't like to do anything like that. We like to be on a boat, right? So we don't want to talk about mountain climbing. But if you talk about the outdoor adventure challenges that amateurs do, and they do successfully, that are really rare, I think you have to compare sailing around the world to like climbing Mount Everest. So there were 658 summits of Mount Everest in 2013. 2014, 2015, a lot of people died on Everest and there weren't as many people that climbed, but we have every reason to believe that the more people every year will be climbing Everest because it's, it's become such an industry. There's a very high chance of dying that there's a lot of things that will kill somebody climbing to the top of the world freezing to death, problems with oxygen. Whereas sailing around the world, there's very low risks. If you compare it to the risks of your daily commute, maybe it's six times riskier. Very low risk activity, certainly less risky than cheerleading. If you're talking about uh, an activity, it's also not very hard in terms of, you don't have to camp out in a really cold tent and starve to death and never have a shower, never, have any sunshine, tramp around in the snow. You're on, a, you're on a boat, it can be quite fun. You don't have to do a ton of physical exertion constantly. Still, only about half the people sail around the world versus climb the highest peak on the world. I'm gonna talk about it, a lot of reasons why I think that is. A lot of it has to do with misconceptions. This is a picture of the wizard's eye we just completed its circumnavigation this week. Five-year circumnavigation. There are uh, my podcast episode 16 guest, Tyler Brandt. He did it in, in stages. He left the boat for significant periods of the time, and he kayaked for a lot of other times. So you can learn about more about him in that episode. Uh, so why are climbers more successful than sailors? doing something that's arguably a lot harder than sailors are doing. Climbers typically don't quit their jobs. They typically don't bring their spouses. They are never confused about their goal. So if you ask a, a, a sailor who's doing long distance cruising, what's their goal? Most of them don't have one, right? They, they cannot tell you what they plan to do, whereas the climbers know they're getting to the top and then getting back down, right? That's what they want to do. And the climbers don't live on the mountain year round, right? Even the people that have quit their jobs and you would say are retired, most of them don't live on the boat year-round. Okay, circumnavigation by the numbers. I developed these statistics. There were no statistics out there. Uh, I used a Latitude uh, 38 list uh, to find out how long the typical successful circumnavigation was. It was five to six years. 57% of them were couples, which is much less than uh, Bahamas cruisers. There were a lot more solo sailors in that group. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily never had crew, but maybe only one person was on the boat the whole time. If you're talking about the World Arc route, that's about 26,000 nautical miles. 
So my episode two, three guests said on my podcast, he wanted to sail around the world, right? And he was going to do it in five years. But the first year, he went 2,000 miles. Second year, he went a few hundred miles. Well, that's, the math's not going to work out. If you plan to sail around the world, you have to get the miles. And you have to get the miles in the right direction. Uh, because if you only have savings for three years, then that means 10,000 miles a year, which is a lot of miles. The boats have been getting bigger, so I'm trying to sail around the world part-time. I'm in a 31-foot boat. People know people sailed around the world in smaller boats, but that's the typical uh, for successful circumnavigators if they were starting in 2015, according to my regression estimates. 49 feet. And the biggest passage is only 3,000 nautical miles. So we just did a 3,500 nautical mile passage to the Marquesas. It may not be the toughest passage, but it is the biggest passage. That took us 27 days, but our boat is small. If you have a longer boat, you're going to go faster. Your speed is a function of your waterline length. So if you have a 31-foot boat, 6 miles an hour is probably the best you can hope for. If you have a 50-foot boat, maybe 7 to 8. All right, the season. So one of the big things that I think you need to think about when you're kind of planning it all out. So the, there's only one part of the world where the hurricane season is during the North American summer, and that's in the Caribbean. The rest of the circumnavigation route, the seasons are switched, or there are no hurricane seasons. So if you're in the kind of the doldrums, there's no hurricane seasons. There are parts of the, the Pacific where there are no hurricane seasons. So I sail to the Marquesas in December because there are no hurricanes in that section of the Pacific all year round. There's no hurricanes in the South Atlantic all year round. Most of the time, 80% of the time, two-thirds of the time, you'll be in the, the April, November to April to May cyclone season. About 15% uh, of the time, you'll be in a part of the world where there's no cyclone or hurricane season. And then the rest of the time, you're in the Caribbean, in the Gulf Coast, if you're coming from uh, the U.S. Right. So my goal for last summer was to just get to Panama, where there's no hurricanes. Uh, there's no hurricanes that ever hit Panama. And so if I got there early enough in the hurricane season, my hurricane risk was really low. So my goal was to get there before July 1st. We got there uh, a couple weeks early. And, and we only left. So all the things in yellow, right, all the stops in yellow, these are southern hemisphere stops on the, the trade wind circumnavigation route that are subject to the November to May cyclone season. So you want to... You want to sail from May to October, right? So those are the only months that people want to do ocean passages because you don't want to be sailing when a tropical storm could develop. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing. I don't have a slide on it, but uh, one misconception is that it's really hard to do a circumnavigation now because of the, the piracy in the Red Sea. And I think that's wrong. I've read a lot of circumnavigators accounts who went through the Mediterranean, went through the Red Sea, and uh, went through the Suez Canal. And that was often one of their toughest parts. Going through the Red Sea is all upwind if you're going in this direction. Uh, there's a lot of ship traffic. There's no friendly shores. There's no places you can actually go ashore and get supplies. And it's way out of your way. It's way out of your way. So, you know, you start out here and go way up here, 
that is that's adding a lot of miles versus the the Cape of Good Hope route. The Hiscocks uh, made this movie called Beyond the Western Horizon, and in the, Beyond the Western Horizon, they said we decided to go the hard way. We went through the Suez Canal, and their highest winds were in the Mediterranean. They had 90 mile an hour winds on the island of Rhodes in uh, the Mediterranean, Greece. Okay, so if we're looking at the world circumnavigation route, where are all the boats? Uh, just did the Bahamas seminar yesterday about our trip to the Bahamas. 19,000 boats, 18,000 boats in 2010 visited there. Trinidad is in the Eastern Caribbean. About 14,000 boats visited there. I respect more than those numbers because not all boats go to Trinidad, so a lot of them. I would like numbers from St. Martin, but Jimmy Cornell doesn't give us those numbers. Then we get to Tahiti. So people from the West Coast go to Tahiti, and that's kind of their first stop on their, or the French Polynesia is kind of the West Coast people's first stop on the global circumnavigation route, right? So all that get going down the coast, going down Mexico, that's, that's extra miles, right? Uh, but that's their home port, so that they're going to move from their home port. Uh, so they're really not on the route until they get to Tahiti. So there's actually fewer people going through the Panama Canal from the east to west than there are landing in Tahiti foreign boats. And the Trinidad numbers are not charter boats. They're just foreign boats. And then Australia, the numbers have. And then if you get past Australia, the numbers third, right? So a lot of people, you know, give up before they get to Australia. A lot of people, or maybe they never plan to, but a lot of people give up when they get to Australia, right? So I talk about in the book about Martin Lane Smith, who did a podcast before me, uh, Podcast Away, his experience crossing the Pacific and selling his boat in Australia in the book. And so really, the number of boats doing a circumnavigation, probably the best estimate is 150, right? The people going through Cape Town or St. Helena or Mauritius, uh, so if you want to see where those places are in the map. So this is Mauritius around here, and then uh, St. Helena is up here in the Atlantic. Okay, so one of the things that really hinders cruisers is the round-trip problem. I really saw that when I did the Bahamas trip, because I did the round trip. But I knew a lot of other people that have been to the Bahamas 5, 10, 20 times, right? They've been doing the round trips for years. They had tons of sea miles. But they kept on going uh, from their home in the U.S. by boat to or Canada to the tropics and then coming back from the tropics at the end of the season and increasing their miles. Martin Lane Smith did the same thing. He kept on going to the tropics in the South Pacific and he kept on going back to Australia year after year. Just kept on adding up his miles, adding up the time he was on the boat, right? The way to solve the round-trip problem is to use the fastest means of transportation. It's called a plane. Take a plane back to your home country or back to the developed world and haul out your boat. Take your boat out of the water, put it in a storage facility, a dry storage facility, and go and do your thing. Whether that be working, whether that be running your business, if you're retired, Go visit your grandkids or enjoy being in the developed world and not in the tropics uh, where it's hot, hard to get stuff, and uh, all those other hassles. You know, I think one of the big, you know, one of the biggest out-of-the-way stops that people make 
is New Zealand. And it's one of the most dangerous stops. You go to the Southern Ocean, the, the violent Southern Ocean. Gales are almost inevitable. So supposedly a gale runs through every five days. Takes you seven days to do the passage. You do the math, you're gonna get hit by a gale. Uh, I quoted the book, you know, somebody that did the passage uh, and she said, well, you know, the good part is we survived and the bad part is we lived through. You probably will survive, but maybe your crew will say, I don't want to do this anymore after that you visit New Zealand. So I recommend New Zealand's a beautiful place. Fly there. Charter a boat there if you want. Comfort in the off season. It is really hot during the cyclone hurricane seasons, right? So that was one of the things we realized when we were doing the Bahamas trip, right? We're in the Keys in April, really hot. We're in the tropics. It's very difficult to live on a boat without air conditioning. So what do we do? We got air conditioning. But then if you get air conditioning, then you're either running a generator or you're hooked up to a marina. You're not really cruising. You're spending all your time doing stuff to make yourself comfortable versus you could have just be at home where you don't have to worry about the air conditioning. You don't have to worry about all the boat stuff. You don't have to worry about stuff breaking down. And the longer, the more time you spend in the, your boat, the more things break down. So that's one good reason why you should fly back. You know, my current plan is to spend three months, two to three months every year on the boat, keep on moving it west, but keep my day job. I teach, but I think there's a lot of other people that could get a time off if they really wanted to. A lot of people that are retired that could not convince their spouse to live on a boat for 12 months of a year, but maybe they could convince them to live on a boat for two months to six months. Obviously, you get more money if you're not cruising all the time, right? You can have a job, especially if you didn't quit your job, right? If you didn't quit your job, then you would do a lot better if you work 10 months of the year or nine months of the year than if you totally quit your job and didn't have money for all that time you're working. And, and you'll find a lot of the famous full-time full circumnavigators, full-time cruisers, in the off-season, they found odd jobs, right? But in this economy, that is not gonna be very profitable. I think most people that are contemplating this would not want to wait tables, right? You know, they would not want the low pay of a boatyard worker. That they get a lot more from their current occupation or their current business and stepping away from it for a few months is a lot better than actually severing all ties because the search costs are really high uh, to get a good job and you just can't get one year in and year out, right? So I did the longest passage of the circumnavigation in a month, right? Less than a month, 27 days, right? It was actually during my uh, winter break. There's, there's all these cost of cruising estimates out there, out here. And the cost of cruising estimates are, they are typically done right after the, the cruisers have spent like $50,000 upgrading their boat. Everything's new, right? They provision for six months. And then they say, oh, well, it only cost us $1,000 our first month of cruising. Right? And then after that, they end their blog. Right? <laughs> you know, they get tired of writing the blog because it's a real, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work being in the media business. People will just give you these lowball numbers, but they won't give you the numbers that involve like the average cost in terms of, oh, well, we spent $7,000 to install that SSB unit. And then after it's installed, oh, it doesn't break down for a couple of years, didn't cost us anything. 
but it cost us something. The other reason why you don't want to quit your job or quit your sell your business is because the failure rates are so high. So I talk to a lot of people that go on tremendous, wonderful, awesome voyages. They do, and, and they are outstanding outliers in all respects. Plus, they they have a huge following. But you know, most of them they quit after two years. And so, if you're doing a five-year circumnavigation, that's that that doesn't cut it. And I don't talk to the people on my podcast who quit after a month or who never leave the dock. There's a big chance that after the first month, somebody in the partnership is going to say, no, I want to leave, right? Okay, so I'll tell you why I say the wife. 95% of the people on my YouTube channel are men. And most of those are men over 35, right? It's not a secret that if you want to have a successful video, you make a, how do I get my wife go cruising? Help contribute with for one of them. If you want to have a successful blog, that's a great blog to write. Uh, or if you have a successful seminar, you have that. So if you don't quit your job, if you don't quit your house, there's a, you can, if it doesn't work out, you, can, you, you have that cushion. The other thing is, if it's part-time, then you're not away from your wife all year round. You're just only away for a couple months, right? And that's a lot easier. Not everybody will do that. Not everybody will say they could stand that, right? Not every couple could do that. But some couples could, but you know, so whether you fall in the bucket that you don't want to have the costs of failure, right? That you have to buy a new house, get a new job, or you could go on if you didn't have 100% support of your uh, spouse or partner, then I think that's one of the reasons why part-time makes sense. Now, I put this in, I think this is a really important thing. I do know the statistics and the statistics are very low. So we went to the kids cruising seminar, which did not happen. And there were only two people that showed up anyways, besides us. But if you do have kids in school, I have nothing against homeschooling. Homeschooling is great. If you do homeschooling, uh, that's wonderful. That fits right within the kind of cruising thing. So if, you, if that's what you do, then you're a good fit if you want to also go cruising. But I think there's a lot of people that would like to go cruising that have kids are not 100% into the homeschooling. It's a lot of work. So I'm in the education profession. My parents taught kindergarten and high school. Uh, so there's a lot of very qualified people out there that the government is letting you use for free uh, for educational services as part of your taxes that you're going to pay anyway that don't make relatively high wages compared to the other people with similar backgrounds that will teach your kids and allow you to work but even if you put your kids in private school right so if your spouse has a job that makes her $60,000 she quits her job goes to full-time homeschooling and you you don't have to pay $10,000 in private school you're kind of $50,000 behind in terms of money Maybe not in terms of experience, but in terms of money, you're behind. So that's why is kids in school important? Because North American summers, right? American summers are when the prime sailing season around the world is, right? So if you're in the South Pacific, there are no hurricanes, there are no cyclones during American summer. If you're in the, the South Atlantic, or if you're in the Indian Ocean, there are no 
cyclone season. So if you would like to have your whole family sailing with you during the summer, you can do it. Whereas if you were in the Caribbean, you could not, right? Because it's cyclone season in, or it's hurricane season in the Caribbean, right? So that's, so it's actually very compatible if you do have kids in school and you'd like. The final point uh, that I'll put out there is uh, that you can be a parts mule. If you go back to the Riddles of the Sands by Erskine Childers, he kind of talked about this. It's a great book if you never read it. Of course, you want to read How to Sail Around the World Part-Time first, and then you'll download uh, Erskine Childers' book. talks about how he had to get all these parts before he joined the boat, right? The benefit of? Sailing Around the World Part-Time is that you're frequently flying in and out. Every two months, every six months, you're flying in and out to the boat from the U.S., abroad. And one of the things that you will learn very quickly when you, when you cruise abroad is that it's a lot harder to find parts, shipping is unreliable, parts are much more expensive, if available at all. If you ship something in, it, FedEx does not exist, that one day delivery does not exist. Even if they say it does exist, they won't, they won't actually tell you that one day delivery exists in the island. Uh, but even if they say it exists, it, say it's two days, five days, double it, triple it, quadruple it, say never, right? Because, you know, when we were in the Bahamas, I was 50 miles from Miami, right? Should be a layup, right? Not easy, not hard. I just had an envelope with my passport in it. That should be pretty easy to deliver, right? But they use independent, con the, the international shipping uses independent contractors who have no tracking. Their customer service line doesn't work, right? You know, I had to petition like the top management to just do the tracking for me, right, of DHL, right? That's not an uncommon thing. So I've read a lot of circumnavigation narratives and at least a chapter or two is the, uh, talking about how they spent two months to get parts and spent three times more than it costs at West Point, right? What you can do is you can put the parts in your luggage, right? And if you're flying in and out, you, you go through customs. Now, would you have to pay customs duties? Depends, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, right? But if you do, you probably would have had to pay customs duties anyways if you shipped it, but at least you know where the parts are, right? If you shipped it, it may get caught in customs and you will have no way to find out where it is. So you can pay the duties if there are duties, and you can have the parts when you fly in. So that, that, that would be my advice in terms of why it makes sense. There's just kind of a misconception that you're going to, if you ever leave the boat, it's you know, somehow cheating, but I don't know. I mean, everybody that I know, that I have talked to, that is sailing around the world, say, just talk to the crew of SV Delos. For the second time, they're going to be on the podcast in this month's episode, right? What did they do in their off season? Well, they flew back to Sweden, they flew back to the US. Are they really sailing around the world? Yeah, they're really sailing around the world. They're 70% around the world, but they left the boat. Anytime you'd really walk off the boat, you know, I guess you'd say that's not part of it, but I think it's that the boat made it there. We're not talking about solo unassisted things. We're talking about a circumnavigation cruise. This trade wind circumnavigation route where you got winds on your back, right, pushing you along. The winds and waves are helping you along, helping you do it. 
most of the way. That route is not a zigzag. Notice we didn't visit a lot of Asia. We didn't visit a lot of Africa. There was a lot of North America we missed. The world's big, right? So you could do that, but you would rack up a million nautical miles. And I don't know anyone that has a million nautical miles in their sailboat. I've never heard of it. I've heard of people who say they had 200,000 over 30 years. A million, what is it? 200,000 is like 7,000 nautical miles per year. It's a lot of nautical miles. You won't meet many people that ever do that, except delivery skippers that do international deliveries, right? You have to make choices. And by not making the choice to keep on going west on the circumnavigation route, you're making a choice that you don't want to do. A circumnavigation. You know, if you want to keep in touch with me, you can sign up for my free newsletter. I'll give people on the newsletter, you go to slowboatsailing.com and put your email in this box and then MailChimp will ask you to confirm that in your email. I notify my newsletter subscribers about whatever I'm doing a free book promo. Right now I'm doing an offer where they get half of my audiobook, Slow Boat to Cuba, once they sign up. If you're looking in the search box, it's, uh, you'll be able to see this talk uh, at uh, Slow Boat to the Bahamas if you're doing the search box or if you're going to write it out it's just slow boat sailing twitter's at slow boat sailing and the youtube channel is slow boat sailing and the podcasts which i know you're going to download your first podcast after this the slow boat sailing podcast and you're welcome to email me too uh do you have any questions how many days do you plan at the beginning and at the end of each of your travels for the haul out you know preparing the boat to be left on the hard and then when you come back, how long does it typically take to prepare it to back in the water, provision, and get started again on the next leg? Okay, so the last trip I did, we were hauled out, and that took us, how many days did it take us to haul out? Like two days, three days, once we arrived. And then I spent maybe a couple more days taking it down. And then I spent less than a week provisioning before that, and that was kind of rushed before we left. So I flew it down during Thanksgiving break. So I guess maybe I only had three, four days to do that. And then I checked the rigging and, and filled up with diesel and put the boat in the water. And then so when the crew arrived in December, we had, we had fuel, we had water, we had most of the provisions except for the perishable provisions, which we got when the crew arrived. And then we left pretty much the same day the crew arrived. So, could you do it in a week? Yeah, definitely, you could do it in a week. You know, why I say you need probably about two months as a minimum if you're gonna keep on, is that you wanna have weather windows, right? So for the Marquesas Passage, it's really hard to weather window because it's so long, so your weather is good for like three to five to seven days. So after that, it's all the pilot charts, so it's pretty, it's a pretty benign passage. Other parts, you know, I mean, like the Gulf of the Gulf of Mexico crossings, you know, I've waited a while for a weather window. So when we did it this summer. I was going down the ICW, waiting for a weather window that would let me get to Florida, or not not the Panhandle, but to get to the southern Florida, right, the peninsula. And that took a little over a week, but I tried to keep on moving the boat every day on the ICW. We waited for weather windows for a while in Cuba. While we were doing that hop, we waited for weather windows a while in Providencia. And that was more 
I'd say Providencia was more not that we didn't have good weather, it was just that we were waiting for ideal weather and we liked Providencia. So Providencia is in the Western Caribbean. Jana and Sophie really, they did one offshore passage out of the five last summer. And it was the worst one, unfortunately. It was upwind. So, uh, you know, trying to get to the, the circumnavigation route, there's a lot of upwind stuff. So the, one of, if you're coming here from Houston, right, it's, it's all upwind until you get to Florida, right? So, so I think you need more time for weather windows than maybe the, the checking out the boat, that type of thing. There's less uncertainty. There's a little bit of uncertainty with the yard, but if you communicate with them ahead of time, that helps giving you kind of faster service. I think the other thing I didn't talk about, how much upwind it is to the Eastern Caribbean, right? So if maybe we look at one of the maps, right? Yeah, so you see, you can kind of see it on this map. This is the Eastern Caribbean here. This is where we are. That's all upwind, right? And it's pretty much straight upwind when you go from Florida to there. And you're adding thousands of miles to your trip to go to the Eastern Caribbean first, right? So I talk about it in the book, you know, well, I want to go to the Eastern Caribbean to convince my wife that I want to, she wanted to sail around the world. But that means you've got this huge expense, you've, you've just added all this distance, and then you have to go back, and then you're going to go back to the Eastern Caribbean when you get all the way back around. So it's, it's way out of your way. The other thing is the passage here. So this is Columbia. There's a permanent Colombian low, right? And so if you're going from the Eastern Caribbean, say St. Martin or Grenada or Trinidad, to Panama, nonstop, it is downwind, that's good. Bad part is a permanent Colombian low means that you're probably going to hit gale force conditions or near gale force conditions, huge waves of over 10 feet. You're going to have a tough passage because of that permanent Colombian low. Whereas if you're coming you know, straight down from Florida, Right, so we went through Cuba, we did that legally, we went through the process to do that legally. Then you avoid the Colombian low, which is like big, it's like it's that area. And you have pretty nice weather. That's the other benefit. Any other questions? Sorry, that was a long answer to the question. Yeah. At the very beginning you said you have a dog. Did yes, I do. Yeah, so the dog did go with it. So he left from New Orleans and went to Cuba and he went to Providencia, which is part of Colombia. It's a, an island way far from it. And he went to Panama and he went to Ecuador. He has not been to French Polynesia yet. I flew him out of Ecuador, right? It's fairly easy in Latin America to bring a dog. You need to have a certificate, you need to have rabies. The problem is other rabies-free countries that cause problems. And so, he did not go from Ecuador to Hivoa, right? He was not on that passage because I didn't think it would, I would be able to take him off the boat legally. I had to, I knew somebody, uh, Tash and Ryan from Chase's Story, who had done that, and the only way you could do that was to go, you take your boat to Tahiti, have a month quarantine, and then fly them out. I'm in the process now. It's a very arduous process to fly him into French Polynesia. He may not come. Right? He may never come to French Polynesia. I don't know. Uh, we will see. How do you find out information about where they can go? Yeah, it's really difficult. I, you know, I'm a big believer in the kind of Facebook 
uh, to get kind of really current information. And then I also look for information on the web. And then I also talk to a lot of people. So I call people up. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Tash and Ryan is because they have cats. Right? And they're sailing around the world and they've, they've gone to some, some more places that I have. And they're ahead of us, so that's nice. Noonsight is probably your first bet. Right? You go to Noonsight first, read what that is. Petpassport.com is really expensive. I don't think the information is great. Don't take it as the gospel truth, but it might give you some idea of what you need to do. Uh, for the Bahamas, you have to like call it. You have to give them postage, and they'll send you a form, and your vet fills out the form, right? Latin America, or for the places I visited, Cuba, Colombia, Panama, didn't care. They just, I don't think, Panama, nobody looked at it. Colombia didn't refuse to look at it. Cuba did look at it, did look at our dog, but they, they bored the boat in Cuba. To fly him out, it was okay sailing into Ecuador, but if you're flying him out, you need to have a vet visit in Ecuador. So. There's a whole different, so there's boating regulations, right, for having the pet on the boat, and then there's flying regulations, and they're totally different, right? And so you want to check the boating and the flying depending on where you're flying. So I would say, yes, with a pet, it's probably more complicated if you're flying out. And, you know, Martin Lane Smith, he, one of the reasons why he spent so much time in Australia was because he, he had he couldn't he couldn't get the boat the, the cats out of Australia. He could only keep them on a mooring. It was just it was a it was a nightmare. So you need to think about which countries you wanna fly them out of. I would guess it's easier to fly out of like Indonesia or someplace, but it's harder for French Polynesia, harder for New Caledonia, uh, harder for Fiji maybe, you know. So you you kinda wanna think strategically about the pets. You're going to be flying in and out. Janet does not sail with me most of the time, so uh, if he wants to stay, he can stay at home, right? Except for when she visits, right? And then you go to doggy daycare. And I'm sure a month of doggy daycare may be cheaper than the vet visits. So. Uh, so. <laughs> All right, so I'm supposed to leave. Uh, if you have any questions, just uh, give me and uh, be happy to answer your questions. Thank hey. you. I have both your boats. Oh, uh, awesome. Books. Oh, that's awesome. So your video with uh, Annie, uh, when she did a boat tour with you, I uh, have one with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. So, so uh, I told her we'd look at it later. She hadn't seen it. All right. Cool. Subscribe to the to the thought. Or it'll be five to seven years and maybe we'll try or something. Oh, cool. What kind of boat do you have? Not, not right now. We charter uh, chemo here on boat. Going through certifications at the 106, offshore regattas, we're chartering the BVIs, so we're building up our experience by renting boats, and we'll, we'll think about buying one. About five years. So you, you captain the charters too? I, I skipper. Yeah. The okay. I, 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 I sail by myself, and just with us. Okay. Cool. All right. Awesome. I was excited to see your that you were on the schedule for it. So the reason we came out today. Well, that's, that's awesome to meet you. It's, it's a rare thing to meet somebody who's actually read my books. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't historically done the podcast. So I, will, I will check it out. Okay, that was the boat show talk that I had in Houston back in April.
I'll probably go back next year at the Houston International Boat Show if they'll have me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, me and my wife like to go to Houston. We also like to visit New Orleans, even though we don't have a boat there. It's just an, it's a nice little trip from Lafayette, Louisiana, get out of town for a little bit. I'm not decided who's going to be our next guest. I have a lot recorded and I, I've started recording again for the next upcoming season. I'm definitely going to have Nadine Slavinsky back on the podcast. She was in the the new episode four because the first episode four was pretty poor sound quality and I replaced it. Uh, she's going to talk about uh, cruising in the Society Islands, Cook Islands, and Tonga, which is uh, my upcoming trip for summer 2018. And I'm looking for crew, although I haven't been actively looking since I got back, but I'm always looking for crew uh, for those passages. The surest way to be on the crew is to be a patron at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. And even if you pledge a dollar, which will give you the free audiobook version of how to sail around the world part-time, when we hit our $80 goal and do our, our crew member drawing, and we're at 48 at the time of this recording, we're about $32 away from hitting that goal. Very achievable by the summer of 2018. Then I'm going to ask the, the patrons, you know, do they actually want to do the trip? And I'm going to bet you that most of our patrons who are great people, they are great sailors, but they're also really busy people. And it's very hard for them to take off a week, two weeks, or even several months. So I wouldn't limit the patron that wins the drawing necessarily to two weeks, as it says on Patreon. I'd consider them for the full two months, possibly, you know, depending on their schedule and their needs. So if you're really interested in doing some offshore passages, seeing the South Pacific, you know, you have to pay your plane ticket out there. That's not cheap, but it's a, it's an experience of a lifetime and you'll get all kinds of other benefits, including that audio book, but you also get the bonus episodes going back to episode 10. And so I think you, you know, if you're not a patron of the podcast, you're kind of missing out on a lot of my passage notes, uh, this in the recent episode. So I've been doing the passage notes, uh, as the bonus episodes, instead of uh, putting them all into one or two podcasts or talking the full podcast about uh, what my summer cruise was like. And so if you want to hear about what it's like to sail around the world, you'll get that full view by being a patron, not just a, a free subscriber of the podcast. But obviously, if you haven't subscribed, you can subscribe for free and you'll get a, a notification and you'll get to download the episodes, when it, the free episodes whenever they come out. So I was listening to a couple other sailing podcasts that were recording podcasts in the islands, and it was really obvious that the sound quality of the interviews were really poor. And one of the reasons why the sound quality of the interviews are really good in this podcast is not just the many hours that I put into editing the interviews, 
But it's also that I spent a lot of money when I was uh, recording interviews or uploading podcasts while I was cruising, buying internet in the islands. And that's expensive and that's time consuming. I spent over $1,000 on just buying data so I could bring you those podcasts on a regular basis in part. You would have not gotten that interview with Dan Govados of Adventures of a Tribe about the May Day in episode 37 from a free Wi-Fi connection. It was only because I had an expensive 4G connection, which I paid for, that we were able to have good enough sound quality to even distribute that interview. All right, on another topic, I'm really excited about the YouTube vlog series. We're going to bring those episodes from crossing the South Pacific, the Marquesas. We visit every inhabited island in the Marquesas on youtube.com, slow boat sailing channel or slash slow boat sailing. The, we're also gonna stop in Fakarava, Tahiti and Morea this season. And I took a ton of video and I think I took so much video, so much good video that I'm gonna have trouble, you know, putting out a monthly episodes unless I make the episodes longer. So we're going to probably this season, a lot of the episodes are going to be uh, 20 to 30 minutes compared to maybe last season that 10 minutes was probably the episode length. So I, I think there's about a, a year lag right now, not quite a year lag, but there will be a year lag on the the videos versus the podcast and, and real time so the podcast is more or less in real time so i think we're in fakarava and that was sometime in july so maybe we're about uh, a two-month delay uh, versus the podcast audio logs versus we're probably around a nine-month delay for the slow boat sailing youtube channel all right, so on the bonus episode, I'm going to talk about the front that came through Fakarava and maybe part of the, the Tahiti Passage or all the rest of the Tahiti Passage. Goodbye for now. I look forward to speaking to you again in October 2017. Until then, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.